It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. And I think I know why you're here, at least in part. It's because we talk about mental health in a pretty blunt and honest way, in a friendly and approachable way, too, I hope. But in a way that breaks through the walls around the topic of mental health. It's not something people talk about much. I made this show because I think mental health needs to be talked about a lot more so we could save more lives. I think more open, honest conversations about this stuff can mean fewer people having to live in agony and more people getting to live. That being said, the topic of mental health, let's be real, it's hard and scary. That's why I got in touch with Anna Sale. She's the host of Death, Sex, and Money, a podcast from WNYC that deals with topics we are reluctant to talk about. Anna is also the author of a valuable new book, Let's Talk About Hard Things. I asked Anna why some topics are so painful and awkward to talk about. I mean, certainly there's a lot of a lot of reasons things can be hard, but I think one of the fundamental um, things that we come up against when we consider, oh my gosh, am I going to bring up this conversation? It's it's the first place we often go is is to say like, how do I bring this up in a way that's going to make this thing less hard? How do I like present this in a way that it's either already solved or it's something that talking about is going to fix. Um, and if I can just find the right words that's going to make this hard thing less hard, then this whole conversation will be less hard. Um, and in fact, that's actually when you make yourself do that labor, that just makes you keep confronting uh, our own lack of control around hard things, which is what makes hard things hard, you know? So is the idea, is what makes these conversations so scary in part because it's a risk for the person bringing them up. They don't know where the conversation's going to go. I think that's definitely part of it. And then I think the other part of it is we sort of rack our brains for figuring out how we're going to be able to present a solution. Um, but often what what is hard are things that are, in fact, not fixable with words, things like loss or grief or a mismatch in what you want in a relationship, for example. And and so a lot of what I talk about in the book is so much about, I think, starting a conversation about hard things is kind of letting yourself off the hook of having a solution pre ready at the ready and instead just kind of commit yourself to saying, like, I'm just going to try to describe what's currently hard for me and to be open to listen back. To what the person I'm talking to is finding hard. You write in the book about how you kind of came to cover the the difficult question, difficult topic beat as a result <laughs> of the end of your first marriage. I wonder if you could walk us into that as to how this became this became your thing. You became the difficult topic lady. Yeah. Um, well, I, um, I started my career as a public radio reporter. I covered things like politics and um, in newsrooms. And um, I think when you begin a career, you know, the thing that journalism taught me is that you, if you figure out how to ask the right questions and you work hard enough and you get the right documents, like you can begin to sort out the answers to some really big questions. Um, and 
I also kind of in, in writing the book, I realized like, wow, I have this faith, I have this faith professionally, but also really in my personal life, having grown up, uh, I'm one of five daughters and I'm on the younger side of that. So I had a lot of older sisters who could tell me what to do and what not to do to do life right. You know, I also um, was somebody who always kind of collected tidbits of quotes and song lyrics, et cetera, and just would make these scrapbooks of, you know, basically how to live life right kind of <laughs> kind of books. And and I think that what I was really kind of unconsciously thought I was doing was I was creating these workbooks that were going to help me not, not run into pain and not make mistakes. Um, of course, that wasn't conscious, but I think I really thought if I try hard enough at life, I can get around some of the some of the really dicey stuff. And when my first marriage was ending and we tried to do all the things that they tell you to do, um, when you have trouble in a relationship, couples counseling, read the books, talk about things, you know, on and on and on. And we did that a lot and we tried really hard and we ultimately discovered that um, just our relationship wasn't going to have a future. Um, it made me sort of uh, pause and think like, oh, um, maybe this approach to life of just kind of trying to find the life hacks around pain um, is not actually uh, all that effective. And and I found that when I was starting out life again as a divorced young woman and had a lot of questions about what my life should look like and what I wanted and how to do it, um, I was most comforted by talking to people who'd also gone through messy things when they lost the script, you know, and just to hear like, oh my gosh, what did you do when you lost your job? Like, where'd you do the next, you know, month, the next two months? How did you begin to rebuild? What happened when you, you know, lost that person you loved? You know, just having conversations about those moments of transition in life, um, even if they were really about different things than, than the end of a marriage, I found myself just really drawn to hearing other people's stories around tough stuff because it just made me feel like I wasn't the only one having to start back at zero, which is what it felt like in that moment for me. Um, and so that was really the beginning of of reorienting the kind of journalism I wanted to do, the kind of conversations I wanted to have, and also kind of how I, I think, presented socially. Like I, I became a much more sort of... Um, okay with sort of saying, oh, God, this part of my life is a mess, you know, when I was having small talk. And, and it was really cool to discover that when you have conversations like that, like you actually get to know people in a lot, you know, more special, deep way. So the podcast is Death, Sex and Money. In the book, you add family and identity uh, into the, the mix. So it's, so the book is about death, sex, money, family and identity. Um, out of all the out of all the possible topic ranges, and and of course, there's all sorts of things that could be awkward and difficult. But but why are these the the top five troublemakers? Why is this the starting lineup? Well, you know, you should have seen my original um, book proposal. I was like, there will be twenty <laughs> chapters. Um, uh, uh, and uh, I the was ambition sort of, like, of a book proposal. It's a beautiful yes! thing. Yes, <laughs> um, and you know, it is a little. Um, it's a big it's a it's a hard assignment to give yourself to say like okay if we're gonna if we're gonna narrow down what are the hard things like what are the top five um but i found i didn't want to just do death sex and money which is the name of the podcast because i felt like i wanted to pull out family in particular because i think 
so much of what can be really difficult in life has its roots in our families of origin and um, sorting through what kind of relationship we want to have to these people that we're told we are supposed to have a close relationship to and, and who, who, who can tell us who we are and where we come from. And I thought it was interesting that it's both a hard thing to talk about and a set of relationships that are hard to talk about hard things within. <laughs> um, and then I feel like identity, I just felt like was really important to include because certainly while, you know, differences in identity show up in death, sex, money, and family, um, I wanted to give a specific look at um, just the the, the, what can be hard in talking specifically across differences in identity when um, we are called to uh, explain who we are, how we move through the world, and also listen and understand that other people have very different, fundamentally different experiences of, of how they move through the world and how others identify them. Um, and that just felt like an important, uh, particularly, you know, I'm a white woman. I felt like to write a book saying this is a book about talking about hard things and to leave out identity um, just felt like a, a wimpy pass. So I thought I needed to include that chapter. When I when I give talks, the number one question by a mile that I'm asked is how to approach a loved one who you might who you think might have a mental disorder, a family member, a close friend that you're worried about. As as a specialist in <laughs> difficult topics, what would you say? I mean, I I understand why this is such a tricky thing. Um, I think it's much more straightforward to start a hard conversation when you have confidence that you can begin it with talking about your own point of view and your own experience, because then you are narrating something about yourself instead of labeling or assigning something that you think is happening with the other person with words that maybe they're not ready to accept or hear or don't think are correct. Correct. Um, you know, I, in, in what I have tried to do in my own life, um, is when I can tell that, I, that someone in my life seems to be struggling, um, either, you know, with something you would call a mental health condition, uh, or even just, just, just struggling to make it through. Um, I just, I find just starting by asking questions, you know, um, and I had a lot of conversations like this it, during the pandemic, because I don't know about you, but what I observed in a lot of my relationships was like, all of us, you know, we lost some way of coping that we had to keep ourselves mentally healthy, whether it was regular exercise or time alone or routine or boundaries. Um, and, and so a lot of people were struggling, including myself. And, and so I found just kind of asking, um, you know, what's going on with you? Or, oh, are you, you know, are you able to talk to anybody about this? You know, when, when if, if, if a friend would, would, break down suddenly when, when talking about having a hard time, I would ask about, you know, if, the, if they had ever, um, if they had any, if they, if, it, if they had ever taken medication, if they had any thoughts about medication, I would just sort of like open that dimension of the conversation, um, to, uh, just try to make the conversation a place where it was clear where I wasn't offering any immediate solutions, but I also wasn't coming at them with judgment about, um, if they were struggling um, with a mental illness or needed some help um, from wherever. So that's, 
that's how I sort of begin it. Um, certainly with more serious um, mental health conditions where you're not sure you can, the person you're talking to um, is safe or has a has a clear sense of reality, um, that that's a different kind of thing. Um, and and I am I'm not an expert on that, um, but I I loved a lot of people who've run into that um, and how to love hurt someone through a serious mental illness, and that's not easy. Um, but but I think just just trying to position yourself as someone who can brainstorm different possibilities for seeking out help is is a general place to start. More with Anna Sale in just a moment. back with Anna Sale, we've been talking about how often I'd been asked how to approach a friend that you were worried might have a mental illness, who might need some professional help, which makes me wonder how many people asking that are really talking about themselves, the old I have this friend construct. Yes. I mean, I, I have every, I've had many conversations with my husband recently where we realize something that um, we are picking on each other about is really about our own, um, (laughs) our our own anxieties and stresses and fears. Uh, It's called projection and it is real. Um, But I, you know, I, I I don't know. I think maybe that's possibly going on. And I also think, um, you know, it is, it is. It is if you love someone and you can tell they're having a hard time coming to you and saying, how do I love someone um, and lovingly offer to be of assistance without making them feel like I'm um, judging them or or giving a word to to what I think is going on in their lives that they themselves haven't offered yet. Um, So I think both of those things could be going on. When When I started talking about mental health, it was in the wake of my brother's suicide. And he had mental disorders that were never uh, properly diagnosed or treated. And I became a, a kind of strident fundamentalist on the topic of, of openness. You know, I, I said very plainly, like, if he had talked about this more, if he had been open to this, if people had been available to talk to about this, he might still be alive. It might have bought him that extra day that could have got him some help. And... And it's sort of I, the the missionary zeal uh, I still maintain. Like we got to pry open all these things, and we gotta we gotta address all these things, especially in mental health. But it's one of the reasons why I've been I've always cheered for your podcast so much. Is like yes, let's confront it, let's get this out in the open. But just in getting ready for this interview today, it did occur to me. Well, what's so great about having hard conversations anyway? Like maybe I should stop and think about this. Why not just live in silence and I'm being a devil's advocate here, but like, what are the real payoffs for, for actually having these things? I mean, I think what you say, I think two things are true. Um, I think number one, when you have conversations about, um, things that are embarrassing, shameful, alienating, stigmatizing, when you give oxygen to those conversations, um, it's not necessarily gonna fix whatever the hard thing is underneath that. But I do think it is a, it is a salve. It is a really important thing that you are offering 
you don't have to be the only one carrying this on your shoulders in silence. And you're not the only one running into these things. Um, and that, so again, it doesn't, it doesn't fix it, but it just makes it less like this is not something that you alone are failing at figuring out. You know, this isn't a personal, um, uh, shortcoming of yours. Um, at the same time, I, I do think, um, there are limits to hard conversations. There are limits to saying like, let's talk about this, you know, like, as anyone who has ever loved someone through serious mental illness and has come up against the limits of available treatments and resources for those treatments, or, you know, try like, you can't just effort your way to fixing things always. Um, and even if it's not, even if it's just about, um, like the end of my marriage to go back to that, like, there came a time where both of us realized, oh, like, the actually, we are not helping each other by trying to talk about this more. Um, we would be helped by accepting what we have learned from these hard conversations and going forward separately. Um, so there is a there is a moment where I really endorse saying, like asking yourself, like, should we still keep talking about this, or have we talked this to its limits, its present limits? Right, right. Well, will talking about it over and over again reach the diminishing returns, make things actually yeah. worse? Yeah. Yeah. People sometimes ask me how I can interview people about mental health and get answers out of them. Like, and, and I will say part of it is that I, I continually forget that you're not supposed to ask people questions about their <laughs> mental health, <laughs> but it's, it's my job and I spend all day on it. So I just, I, I space that it's taboo. Um, but I try as best I can to, to, to ask those direct questions that kind of, um, use some, use them as a blunt object and, and just try to smash through a lot of that. Is that, is that something that can work in the real world to, to just say, you know what? I know these are all taboo. I'm going to pretend that they're not, and I'm just going to be super blunt and ask you about this stuff. Or is that? dangerous. I mean, I think it, I think where it can be really effective. And I think this is why, you know, the, the conversations that you create are so valuable is because when you just name a thing and say like, depression is an experience that I, you know, I know intimately, like, how about you? Like the, it's like, oh, we're allowed to talk about that. We don't have to hide and pretend like it's not happening. You know, I think about that with things like money. Like we don't talk about money, even as we all like look at our bank accounts on our phones, you know, every few days to see how we're, <laughs> how we're doing in the world. You know, it's like not something we verbalize. And I just find like, wh why not just admit like how our relationships w with money and how they've been affected by, um, you know, luck and chance and, and effort. Like when you acknowledge and invite in that kind of with questions about that, that that's part of the plot of all of our lives, you can sort of be like, Oh, okay, we're going to actually admit that that's happening. Okay. Um, and I, I think it can be effective in real life. Um, usually how I try to do it is, is first by like modeling, you know, kind of like saying something first about me rather than, um, so it's not so much like, uh, you know, if it's somebody I don't know well, um, the, the blunt object, as you say, like just kind of tossing something at them, but, but instead sort of first, you know, saying something around, ugh, this, this 
I've had trouble with this. Like, this was a hard thing for me. Like, how about you? Or, or some, something like that, just so it um, feels like something you're inviting them into instead of, um, you know, interrogating them or accusing them of something that they're not, might not want to share with you. When I think about tough topics like money, like sex, like, I, I, I think we have a mutual friend in Dan Savage. Whenever he starts talking about sex, I just turn into a very nervous old person and I just want him to stop <laughs> right away. Um, <clears throat> but when, when I think about money, I think, well, if there isn't as much money in there as I thought there was going to be, then I'm a bad person and I've been viewing this wrong. These are like the old voices, old, old voices of depression in my head that, that kind of go to those instinctive spots. Mm -hmm. And how, how hard is it to separate like uh, a habitual harmful self-image uh, from these topics? Because I think it's probably makes the topic extra intimidating for people with a history of anxiety or depression disorders. Yeah, I think I really like that question. Um, because I think it's like, when you just, you're just making clear, like what happens in our heads, like, I'm bad, or I'm wrong. Um, and I'm unlovable, I'm, I'm unlovable, this die. is something I <laughs> did wrong, you know, I'm worthless. Um, and, uh, you know, I, what I, I will tell you what I have gotten from the work of having conversations about tough things with people on, on death, sex and money. And through writing the book is, um, just spending a lot of time with hard things and looking up close at my own experiences and other people's experiences. Um, I have been really comforted by just, uh, you know, um, <laughs> how there's just like, a lot of pain that each of us run into, you know, and, and there's a section in the sex chapter of my book where I just, I wanted to um, spend some time on the importance of hearing rejection, right? Like I, I talked to somebody who struggled with when his, when a girlfriend kind of very abruptly ended a relationship and he was very angry and felt very like she was withholding closure from him. And, um, and, you know, he, he wanted to, he wanted her to come back. He wanted their relationship. And, um, you know, s certainly like, I understand like wanting to, to just feel like you had that one last shot to fight for something that you cared about. But, um, the fact is like romantic relationships are about figuring out what you want and need and constantly figuring out if that matches up with someone else's wants and needs. And part of that comes with the risk of rejection. And rejection stings and rejection sucks. And the risk of rejection is, causes us to do all sorts of things to pretend that we're not invested or anything like that. Um, but in fact, like if you do find yourself rejected, um, the fact is like that happens, that happens. To, to most all of us um, at some point and, and certainly to different degrees of pain. But, but I think like by just looking up close at a story of rejection, you could read it like, well, the moral of this story is I'm unlovable and I'm bad. And, and if I were someone else, this person would have wanted to be with me. Or this moral of the story could be, wow, the timing was off on that and we weren't a good match, you know? Um, and so I think it's about what you get when you study 
kind of tough things up close and how they show up in a lot of people's lives, like you come up with different ways to read a situation. And, and certainly, um, you know, I, I have those voices in my head too, which is like, oh, there's that old self-loathing voice who's telling me I'm doing all the wrong things and I'm never going to be safe. Um, but, but when you, when you like collect enough information to say like, oh, well, I'm going to talk back to that part of my head because I have these other ways of reading the situation. Um, and that I, I find for myself, it, it helps me to sort of diffuse the intensity of that negative self-talk. Has part of your journey in working on these topics led to um, having to face up to a lot of things about yourself, tr trying to face up to your own psychological tendencies or, you know, any, any depression or anxiety uh, issues that you've had in the past? Like, it seems like establishing the sense of self is really central uh, to not letting the rest of, you know, the rest of these topics kind of burn you in the process. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say like, I, I have really learned both from my work and just through moving through life. I'm now 40 years old. Like, um, oh, I'm an anxious person. I'm an anxious person who, uh, really like has to remind myself that, um, talk myself out of catastrophic thinking. You like, I can very quickly go to the catastrophic thinking if I'm not, my own tick is to constantly feed myself um, external validation that comes from achievement, right? Like uh, I'm a classic yeah. middle child. Like I, and I, I, when I say that out loud, I'm like, oh my God, that is so embarrassing. Like Anna, you're 40 years old and you still want to chase around like trophies, you know, from teachers mm -hmm. and grownups. Like, are you kidding? Like there's not, a life report card. That's not how it works. But still, that's what my like, um, you know, sort of most base uh, emotional needs, how they show up. Um, but I've gotten to know that. And I'm like, I, I've gotten to know, instead of being like, I'm going to pretend that that part of me is not there, because I don't think she's very cool or honorable. I'm going to be like, Oh, there's that like, a plus student who really wants to get that gold star again, like even in a situation yep. where there's no gold star. Um, so, so I think certainly like, um, I've, I really like that's, I've gotten part of that comes, has come from work. Part of that has come from therapy. Quite frankly, part of that has been in relationship, both with my first husband and, um, with my, with my husband, Arthur, who like, he's a really good, he's a digger in and we talk a lot and he's, I've gotten to know myself in a much deeper way um, than I ever had before through this relationship in a ways that I really love and appreciate. Um, but uh, the other thing that I think I've gotten from my work specifically is really appreciating that life is a series of choices that are not right or wrong, but a series of like trade-offs Um and that has helped me a lot instead of feeling like, am I doing this in the right way? I think about like, okay, what's, what's great about what's coming with this choice and what's, you know, some of what I have to let go of. And um, certainly becoming a parent has been, made me think about that. Like there's a lot that's wonderful about having two little kids and there's a lot that you have to let go of from your life before. Um, so that, that's also helped is just like embracing ambivalence. Yeah, they don't they don't do gold stars in adulthood, but they, you know, getting a profile of you yourself in the New Yorker is probably the similar thing. <laughs> like, but you know what's so sad, John? Like I could feel myself. I was like so when something wonderful happens, I know my um 
the way that I metabolize it, I have to force myself to like be really proud in the moment and like really not go to that place where I'm just going to burn it out like a piece of paper in a fire and need more fuel. Like I, so it's, it's not even, even when really wonderful things happen, um, it doesn't fix it. I've, I've started to call this the achievement delusion because I couldn't find any other, uh, I like that a lot (laughs) term for it. I mean, and it's honestly, I, I wrote about this in my book and it's the part that's probably got the biggest response. This idea that, you know, if you just get that next job, if you just get this person to go out with you, if you could just buy a home, all of this would go away because someone who had that wouldn't you know, would be very happy and therefore they would have no other problems, which isn't the way mental disorders work or, or the way life works. And, and of course, then you, you get that thing and you think, well, if I could just, you know, now I have this podcast, if I could just get a million downloads in a month, <laughs> then I'll be happy. And, and it just goes on and on and on. And I wonder if, if those of us in, in media, like what, what percentage of our, ending up in media is that the the validation is more built into this industry than any other. I mean, <laughs> what's the chicken and egg on that situation? I know. It's so embarrassing. When I finally learned to say out loud, like, it's true. I just really want to talk into a microphone and have people listen to my voice and hear what I have to say. Like, yeah. that really fuels me. Like, instead of you know, certainly I'm, I'm mission driven and all of those things, but also I really like, um, I really like that part of the job too. Um, yeah, I, I really, I, I feel that. And I, and I, I've come up against what I have found has been kind of useful for me. And I did this a lot when I lived in New York city, because I, I felt like, um, you know, in New York, you can, you can really watch your peers and media and you can see, the, the choices they make and kind of, um, you know, if they do have opportunities when, when they choose which opportunities, like how it transforms their lives. And I had to, it helped me to like, look at, okay, Anna, if you really just want to have this, um, more, 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 uh, worldview, like, okay, let's play the tape out. Like what might your life look like? You say you want to have kids, like how would you raise your kids if you had this job that required you to, for example, travel all over the world or do, you know, like I had to, and certainly people do it, but, um, you know, like I, it helped me to think like, what are the trade-offs of more, 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 more? And like, do I want to invite that in? Or um, do I want to try to create other paradigms for what my life ought to look like? More with Anna Sale, including the toughest person to have a tough conversation with, in a moment. Hello, I'm Riley Smurl. I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm Taylor Smurl. And we host Still Buffering, a cross-generational guide to the culture that made us. Every week, we share media that made us who we are. Things like Archie Comics. Sailor Moon. And lots of Taylor Swift. And now that Riley's an adult, it comes with 100% more butts. And now I am totally comfortable with it. So check out new episodes of Still Buffering every Thursday on MaximumFun.org. Butts, butts, butts. Join in, Riley. Butts, 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 butts.
are the host of My Brother, My Brother, and Me, and now, nearly 10 years into our podcast, the secret can be revealed. All the clues are in place, and the world's greatest treasure hunt can now begin. Embedded in each episode of My Brother, My Brother, and Me is a micro-clue that will lead you to 14 precious gemstones all around this big, beautiful blue world of ours. So start coming through the episodes. Uh, let's say starting at episode 101 on. Yeah, the early episodes are pretty problematic, so there's no clues in those episodes no no not at all the better ones the good ones clues ahoy listen to every episode repeatedly in sequence laugh if you must but mainly get all the great clues my brother my brother me it's an advice show kind of but a treasure hunt mainly anywhere you find podcasts or treasure maps my brother my brother me the hunt is on back with anna sale You know, talking to friends or family about a touchy topic can be difficult, but there's another person you need to talk to who can be even tougher. Sometimes a difficult conversation needs to be held within oneself to try to figure out what am I BSing myself about? What's the real situation? What's my inner truth? Um, Can we use the same techniques in having a difficult conversation with ourselves as we use in having a difficult conversation with others? Ooh, that's an interesting question. Um, I kind of think like every hard conversation and difficult conversation um, has to start with a conversation with yourself, which is like, why do I feel this urge to have this conversation? Um, If you're, if you're like finding yourself, thinking about starting a conversation that you are uncomfortable beginning or, or if a conversation you didn't anticipate goes off the rails and didn't go well, like what happened there? Like what was my role in that? Um, I, what are the techniques? I mean, I do think, I think this is very hard. And I think this is why therapy is so useful is because it can be really hard to have, to be a, um, (laughs) Uh, an uninvested listener with yourself, you know, Mm. like, so I think that um, just creating that little bit of space between the voice in your head, and then the part of you that's listening to what you're telling yourself, like, um, is, is really important. And, and, and so talking to a therapist, or even writing down in a journal, so you're creating a kind of record of the internal monologue, so you then can observe it and notice it. Um, I think that's really important. Um, I also think like it's really important to, I, for me, the hardest part of a hard conversation with myself is when I finally, if I've like, if I think I've, I've done something wrong or hurt somebody in a way that I didn't intend, like to allow in that softness to say like, oh shit, I screwed that up. And I really, it makes me feel really bad. And um, I'm finally like getting to that place of just being like, oh, I made a mistake and I'm going to take responsibility for it instead of, for me, it takes, you know, there's a, there's a period before that step of just like, well, they shouldn't have done that. Blah, 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 you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so that's, that I think is, can be a really hard part of having a hard conversation with yourself where you just say, you know, that didn't go well. Maybe the person who I was I have a conflict with or something, you know, there's all these things that I think they didn't do well, but really just, I've learned this from friends in recovery, like really taking responsibility for your side of the street and, um, 
and apologizing when you need to. Yeah. Do you ever think about unwinding by hosting a podcast about really super easy topics? <laughs> like how awesome pizza is and dogs are great. Um, you know what, John? I have a like one of my weird <laughs> fantasies that keeps showing up after this book came out. I was like, what is the next thing I want to do? And I was like, for some reason, I keep picturing like a lounge act with a bunch of middle-aged moms where we drink martinis and gab on stage about nothing hard. <laughs> so it's like, yes, I have those <laughs> fantasies. Um, and I think a, a lot of it is like, you know, I I like... I, I do really want in my work and in my life more joy and celebrating joy and wonder because mm. we all, there there is enough. I mean, if there there is a lot, there is a lot of really scary, sad, challenging things, both at the most micro level in our own personal lives and at the macro level of the future of the earth. And um, I I actually have been helped by. Um, a therapist has has been instead of like gratitude list she has recommended just finding moments um to savor and i really like that verb so i'm really trying to do that this summer just being like oh the sun on my face on this beautiful day while i'm laying in the grass i'm savoring this uh, uh, cuz it's a nice a nice break from what is often bubbling around in my head Before we go, John, I, I do wonder, when, those questions that you get from people who hear you speak or who, who've read your book about how to open up a conversation with somebody in your life who you think might be struggling with a mental disorder, what's, what's the advice you give? I, I, usually, I have this concept of a, a channel, a portal, a tunnel of some kind. And so I, I tell people, you know, bring up something about yourself, like, oh, man, COVID was rough. I, you know, turns out I was in, I was in a real depression. I, I hit this, you know, I had this sort of bleakness about the way the virus was going around really affected how I was getting my work done and my relationships ever have anything like that. And I always tell people at that point, that person might open up to you gloriously, or they might just say no and swiftly walk away from you. And Either one is good because then they know that the portal is built. They know that they can get back to that. And you've identified yourself as somebody who it's safe to go to with something like that when the time is right. And, uh, you know, because I, I, I don't think there's a way to, and I'm sure you know this too, you can't open someone else up. It's, mm. it's impossible and it's uh, kind of rude. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can just show how great it is to be opened up and then hope that they join you there. Yeah, I love that. I like the idea of a portal. Like you're just, you're just like, imagine like if you could see those portals as people moved around, like the people who've, who've been those portal people to you, you can like, you see those little circles above their head or something. Um, yeah. <laughs> I really like that. I really like that. And I think that's it's exactly It's like a science right. fiction idea, you know? Yeah. It's like Stargate. <laughs> yeah. Because you can't... I, I really like how that advice just reminds people that it's... The timing isn't up to you in relationships. Like, you have to allow the person you love to... They are where they are. Um, and I I think that's really beautiful advice. 
Yeah. Anna Sale, thank you so much. Thank you. Anna Sale's book is Let's Talk About Hard Things. Her podcast is Death, Sex, and Money. This show, this interview, Anna's book, my book, none of it can necessarily make talking about mental health easy because it's just not. It's not easy for me, even though I've been doing it full-time for most of the last six years. Mental health is a murky topic. It's hard to understand. There aren't any real visuals about it, for one thing. You can't look at mental health or mental illness. If you're trying to figure out what the weather is going to do, you got Doppler radar, you can learn about cloud patterns, you can predict what's going to happen. If you're trying to figure out what's happening in a car, you can pop the hood, look around at the parts, and see and hear what's going wrong. Your mind isn't like that. You don't always have a lot to go on in terms of indicators happening within your own brain. And with other people's mental health, you have even less. And so we're left with talking about it, hopefully in an informed way, sometimes in a way that involves trained professionals. And talking about it generally means bringing our frailties and vulnerabilities out in the open to be poked at, which again, yeah, is rough. It's all part of what makes the topic really rough. A discussion about mental health is basically a version of that dream of being back at school in your underwear. You know, you're, you're talking about this thing that can be embarrassing and vulnerable, and you wonder uh, what people are thinking when they're looking at you, and you're wondering if any of this is real. It is hard, but talking is all we got. So let's try to get as good at it as we can. I'm going to keep working on that myself, and I'll be here at this show on this podcast to help you do the same. Next time on Depression Mode, when depression hits hard, some people try therapy, some people try medication, some people try yoga or meditating or prayer. Kelly had a different approach, crafts. As I say right on the cover, they are easy crafts. I would not necessarily call them good crafts. I would not call them beautiful crafts. We're not, call them we're impressive not going crafts. after an Etsy kind of thing here. No, we're, we're doing crafts together that a seven-year-old could do. We are focusing on making a tiny yarn puff, perfectly spherical, so we don't fantasize about driving into the highway median. The surprising craft-based mental health care of Kelly Williams-Brown, author of Easy Crafts for the Insane. Depression Mode can only help people, can only entertain, can only exist with the support of listeners. Thank you to those who have supported the show. If you haven't, please, it's easy to become a member, to pay for what you enjoy and use, to throw in a few bucks to keep it going. MaximumFun.org slash join. We love it when you recommend Depression Mode to friends. It might help them. Also, something that matters a lot, hit subscribe give us five stars, write reviews. This show is averaging five stars on Apple Podcasts right now, which is a very hard thing to do to average that. We appreciate your help. Keep it coming. That helps more people find out about the show, which helps our mission of getting those conversations going. I want you to know that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 for free at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. 
The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available. Text HOME to 741-741. Depression Mode is your show, too. Let us know who you want me to interview, what issues you want to hear more about. We take requests. Send them along to our electric mail address, depressionmode at maximumfun.org. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. Great talk going on over there. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DepressPod. Our Depression Mode newsletter is available on Substack. It comes out twice a week. I'm on Twitter at John Moe. Hi, Credits listeners. NASA engineer Judith Love Cohen wrote the abort guidance system that ended up saving the Apollo 13. She finished it in the hospital on the day her son was born. That son was the actor Jack Black. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings I'm Aaron Santel from Maryville, Tennessee, and you may not know it, but you are amazing, and you've got this. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.